Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Daryl Wilson, CEO and Portfolio Manager of Affluence Funds Management. If you've been around Livewire for a while, you've probably seen some of Daryl's ever-popular articles about LICs. As one of the few LIC experts on the buy side, Daryl offers unique insights into this often misunderstood asset class. In this episode, we discuss the basics of LICs, including how they function and some common jargon. He explains how to construct a portfolio of great LICs, and he shares some of the most attractive opportunities in the LIC market today. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Daryl, welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you. Thanks very much, Patrick. Good to be here. It'll be a little bit of a different topic today. LICs is not something we've really discussed at length on the podcast before. I did discuss it a little bit a couple of years ago when I uh, when we we interviewed Jeff Wilson. Obviously, he's a big fan of LICs, but you're the first, you know, like LIC expert that we've really had on the show. Really looking forward to to having a bit of a chat today and to to getting some insights into your area of the market. Yeah, it should be interesting. Hopefully, <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Let's start, I guess, just with a little bit of background about LICs and also how you got into the sector. I mean, as I kind of alluded to, it's it's not the biggest area of finance, particularly when you're talking about, you know, in the funds management, it's, it's fairly popular amongst retail investors, but not a lot of fund managers are active in this space. What kind of first piqued your interest in the sector and why did you decide to launch Affluence? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We didn't start out at all uh, targeting LICs. We kind of came across them by accident. And um, so the history of Affluence is that uh, the two of us doing investing at Affluence is myself and and Greg Lander, uh, who's the co-owner of the business. And we'd worked for um, over 10 years together at a, a listed property fund manager in Brisbane called Cromwell. Got to know each other pretty well, and um, he's a valuer by trade, and I was originally an accountant, so we're pretty conservative. Um, and it, it struck us that um, you know, whilst we'd spent a long time in property, there, there was kind of an opportunity to do something a bit wider. And the Cromwell business was was a, a fantastic place to work. It's and still is very focused on retail investors, um, on helping people with you know, not a lot of money to invest and sort of guiding them through the process. And so that was one of the, the things that really struck a chord with us at our time there and we've taken that through to Affluence. And the germ of how Affluence started was 
one of my jobs at Cromwell was I used to do some of the investor relations because I, I was sort of running the funds management business and I'd, I'd been the CFO. And so I'd meet, I literally met hundreds of fund managers over the years uh, at Cromwell. And, and one of the amazing things I found was that almost the more obscure they were, um, the less money they were running, you know, the, the ones you'd never heard of would walk in the door and impress you tremendously. Uh, and they just seemed incredibly smart. And, and when we looked into it, there was some features that a lot of these really good fund managers had in common. And so, you know, we started Affluence as a manager of managers, if you like. And, and so our core product is not our LIC fund. That's the one we're probably best known for. But our core product is the Affluence Investment Fund. And it's really designed to kind of bring that family office style of investing to um, to everybody. And so what we do there is we go out. I mean, the first thing we did back in 2014, 15, when we started was we spent almost a year looking at every manager, every unlisted fund in Australia, trying to work out what worked, what didn't, you know, how the outperformers did well. Um, and, and we used that to set up the starting portfolio for the Affluence Investment Fund. And it's, you know, to this day, it's chock full of managers who a lot of people don't know of. Um, they're almost exclusively boutique. They have skin in the game. They own a share in the fund manager. Uh, a lot of them are are actually full. Um, so, you know, around 40% of the managers we invest with through through that fund are closed to new investors and another 20% you have to be a wholesale investor to access. So um, there's some great fund managers out there if you know where to look. Um, and so that was, the, that, that was what we started the business with and that's what we do as our core activity. But in the course of looking at unlisted funds for almost a year, we sort of started looking at listed investment companies and, and Greg went, hey, um, th there's actually an opportunity here. Um, and and there's, a, there's a couple of reasons we like LICs. The, the first one is that the manager set is actually incredibly talented compared to unlisted funds. So it's quite concentrated. There's about 100 LICs listed on the stock exchange here in Australia and, and the quality of managers is tremendous. Um, and the second opportunity is to be able to take advantage of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but to take advantage of the fact that um, these things can trade at, at discounts and premiums to their kind of underlying value. So we came across the, the sector. We liked it. We started doing some work. In 2015, we, we started running a small portfolio of LICs within our Affluence Investment Fund. And in 2016, we... We, uh, we sprouted that out into its own fund and we set up the, the Affluence LIC fund. And so it's been going now for five, five and a half years. It sounds like you uh, maybe started with a similar insight to what we did here at Livewire, which was just the incredible underappreciated talents in the, you know, amongst these smaller boutique fund managers. There's, there's so many of them out there that, you know, the, the average investor in retail investor in the market's probably never heard of, but I honestly believe that most of the best managers in Australia are operating boutiques. <laughs> I, I would absolutely agree with that, um, you know, because in a lot of cases, the larger fund managers, um, the way they risk manage the, the investment teams actually holds them back from making a lot of money. 
it really they struggle to outperform. There, there are exceptions. Um, Perpetual, for example, is, a, is an example of a large fund manager that does a very, very good job of allowing their investment teams to, to do what they can to perform well. But it's quite rare. In general, what we find is the more money uh, a manager has, the less chance they have to outperform. It's as simple as that. Let's assume you came across an investor who's never heard the phrase LIC before. So assume they have some knowledge of markets but don't know anything about LICs. How would you explain to them what an LIC is and why they should consider investing in it? Hmm. Well, an LIC is um, essentially at its core no different to any other managed fund or any other ETF for that matter. Um, It's just a big investment bucket. A load of people put money into it, um, in the case of an LIC, through owning shares that are listed on the stock exchange. In the case of an unlisted fund, you'd buy units. But the concept is the same. There's There's a bucket of money which is managed by a professional investment manager. Um, So the biggest difference between uh, an LIC and uh, other forms of, of pooled funds uh, is that in the case of an LIC and an LIT for that matter, uh, the price is determined by the market. And so by that I mean if you put money into an ETF or a managed fund, uh, what generally happens is that uh, the price you get is determined by the value of the assets that that fund owns. So the manager adds up the total of everything divides it by the number of shares or units, and that becomes the price. Um, And so the price you get when you go in or come out is is based on that. With an LIC or an LIT, the price is determined by the market. So if the market loves it today, it might trade higher than the value of its assets, and if the market doesn't like it today, it it might trade lower. And that essentially is one of the big reasons you might want to be investing in the sector because that um, that brings with it an additional risk and reward set. You know, you can you can actually make money if you can buy well and sell well um, over and above what you can actually get from the underlying investment. Well, let's go over some uh, jargon terms that might not be familiar to those who are not already invested in this in this area. Um, you actually mentioned just one of them just then, so we'll start there. Uh, LIT, what does, what does it stand for and what is it? Okay, so a listed investment company is exactly as it sounds. It's a company listed on the stock exchange um, that owns an investment portfolio. A listed investment trust is the same. It's a trust listed on the stock exchange that invests in a portfolio. Now, the difference between the two at its heart comes down to tax and the way they pay money to investors. So an LIC, like any company, pays tax, uh, generally at a rate at the moment of 26 or um, 30%, depending on the size of it, um, and it pays dividends to the investors in that company. Uh, and so when it pays the dividends, depending on uh, how much tax it's paid, they can be frank dividends as well. And so you get you get a frank dividend and a share of the tax credits for the tax the companies pay. An LIT uses the trust structure, which is the same structure that a listed fund, an unlisted fund, and and an ETF use. And they're what's called flow-through vehicles, so they don't pay any tax at all. Um, And so what happens there is that they essentially just 
work out how much of the income they get is taxable and they let you know that every year uh, and you put that in your tax return. And they pay a distribution rather than a dividend. Now, to, to make that really simple, um, if a listed investment company made $100, it would pay $30 of tax and it could distribute $70 out to investors. Uh, a listed investment trust would make $100 and it would pay no tax and it could distribute the entire $100. So in some cases, actually, an LIT is a better structure because it, you're going to be able to get potentially a higher cash distribution but less tax credits. But everyone has a preference. Some people love their franking credits. Others prefer more cash. Uh, so it comes down a little bit to a personal preference. Next term, uh, NTA, what does it stand for and what, what does it actually mean or what, what's its importance? Mm-hmm. So NTA stands for net tangible assets or um, sometimes NAV is a term that's used, which um, stands for net asset value. Uh, it's a similar concept. So I spoke before about the fact that uh, managed funds work out the value of their units or their shares. Um, so an NTA for a listed investment company or a listed investment trust is simply taking all of the value of the assets it owns, the investments it owns, and dividing that by the number of units or shares that are on issued. So if it has a million dollars worth of investments and a million shares on issue, the NTA is going to be $1. And LICs and LITs um, have to, under the ASX listing rules, they have to put that number out every month um, they get 14 days after the end of the month to calculate it, which is quite generous. So by the 14th of each month, uh, every LIC and LIT has to tell the market what their NTA was for the previous month. And that usually comes out in, in two ways. They have a before tax and an after tax NTA. So you can understand <clears throat> potentially if they had a lot of tax to pay, if they sold all of their portfolio, you can you can understand that by looking at the difference. It seems a lot of um, the LICs these days are actually kind of exceeding their uh, their regulatory requirements and and declaring those NTAs more often than that too. Is that right? Yeah. Look, there's a, there's a range of different treatments uh, amongst individual LICs, and you're right. Um, there's generally been a trend to disclose that, that value more often. So there's quite a lot now that will disclose weekly. And there's a few that will do daily. So you get everything from um, you know, knowing what it is essentially every day to those who will wait right to the last minute to tell you um, what the NTA is 14 days after the end. And that's part of what creates opportunity for us because, because we're quite active in the space, particularly for those that disclose less often. If, if the market's moving around and the value of their investments is moving around, you know, we can estimate um, with reasonable certainty how that NTA is changing, but the market might not necessarily be totally aware. So that's, you know, there aren't many cases these days where you can have an information advantage over the market, but that is one case where if you if you work hard, um, particularly in a market that's moving around a lot, you can glean some opportunities from that. One more term for you to define for us, although I, I guess it's, it's technically two terms, but they are closely related to each other, um, and that's discount and premium. Yeah, so that, that's a good one, and it's um, it really goes to the heart of where the opportunity is uh, in LICs and LITs. Um, so the discount uh, is when the share price is lower than the NTA, 
and the premium is where the share price is higher than NTA. So if you're paying a premium, you're paying more than the value of the investments that the LIC holds. And if you are buying something at a discount, you're paying less. And so for us, the perfect um, perfect scenario is that, is that we can buy at a discount. And hopefully over time, you know, those discounts and premiums can change and they can change quite a lot through a full market cycle. So the real advantage for us or one of the big advantages or the opportunities is to be able to, is to, be able to um, buy at a, a decent discount and sell at a, at a lower discount or even at a premium. And so then, again, you, you're making money not only from the underlying performance of the manager, but you're also making money from that discount premium changing. Would you ever consider investing in or continuing to hold uh, LICs that were trading at a premium? Uh, we we do from time to time. It's it's rare that we do, um, but what what will happen from time to time? We actually saw it recently in uh, WAM Leaders, for example, WLE is the code where. It was trading at a, a premium. Uh, they did a capital raising. It traded at a discount for a little while, and then it's been trending back towards a premium. So we held it through through that process. Uh, we, we we participated in the capital raising. Uh, we we held it through until it traded at a, a you know about four or five percent premium, and we we have sold a bit recently. So um, we would do, uh, but it's it's rare. It would be rare that more than ten percent of our portfolio would be trading. At a premium, because there's generally always opportunities to buy um, at a at a discount, and so we tend to prefer to be owning things that are cheaper than they should be. Well, over the last, I guess probably three or four years that I'm aware of, it might be a longer longer running trend than that. But um, in the last few years, there's been a pretty noticeable trend of these larger LICs trading either close to or at a, to NTA or at a premium to NTA in some situations. Um, why do you think it is that these larger LICs do, you know, are, are more popular and draw more capital? And do you think it's sensible for people to be doing this, you know, buying them at, at premiums? Uh, well, I, I don't think it's sensible, no. Um, but uh, it's just a feature of the market that... Um, uh, I guess you just have to take into account when you're looking at the sector. So, you know, if you unpick that, there's a couple of trends happening. Firstly, the larger LICs, uh, and certainly the ones that have been around the longest. If you look at one like AFIC, for example, which is the largest LIC out there, it's been around for oh, look, uh, fifty or more years, I think. Uh, it tends to trade quite close to NTA, uh, small discount, small premium um, most of the time. Um, and it's just got a rusted on group of shareholders who tend to buy it, um, maybe add to it over time, but very, very rarely ever sell. And it's similar for a, a number of others. Uh, Milton is another one, although that's recently um, been taken over. Uh, Wham Capital, the largest of the, the Wham asset management vehicles, is another one that has traded at a premium for and so the, the reality is it's no different to the ASX20. They might not be the best companies out there, but particularly with the rise of passive investing, uh, people just view that bigger is better, and so that's that's where the money flows. For us, uh, 
very much our sweet spot is not that. Our sweet spot is the medium-sized LIC. So they tend to be the ones which are between, let's call it a hundred million market cap, and maybe about eight or nine hundred million. And the reason for that is there's a lot of uh, differentiated strategies in that space. There's a lot of exciting fund managers, and the discounts and premiums tend to move around a lot more. So that gives us more opportunity. So we don't tend to own the large ones, the very large ones, very often. Um, because there's just not enough variation in alpha in that space, uh, but we we tend to be in that middle ground. Why not the smaller end? Is there are there reasons that you tend not to go to the small? Because I mean, the LIC market goes a long way down. There are some really really tiny ones, which I'm I'm sure most people have probably never heard of. So is there a reason you're avoiding those kind of well, not avoiding, but less inclined to invest in those sub hundred million dollar ones? Yeah, look, look, we do invest. Um, we do invest in c- quite a lot of smaller ones. One of our larger holdings, in fact, is an LIC called NGE Capital, and it's got a market cap of probably twenty-five million. Um, but it's quite a liquid, and so our, our constraint as a as a fund manager tends to be liquidity. So we're limited in how much of those types of investments we can hold. Um, you know, there are some. Very good. There's an LIC called AIQ, Alternative Investment Trust. It, it's to us a very attractive investment proposition, but but it really trades by appointment and it's just too illiquid for us to hold it. So some of those smaller ones we, we'd probably like to own. Uh, we'd be very happy to own. If it was if it was me personally investing, uh, then I'd be very happy to own them. But as a fund manager, you do have to have some regard to liquidity. So that does limit what we look at. And, and there are others, certainly. A lot of the smaller ones tend to be quite opaque as well. So quite often they just don't make the cut for us. So, you know, if, if there's 100, there's just over 100 LICs out there now and LITs, um, our investment universe is probably 70 of those. We, we tend to chop off the very large ones most of the time and we tend to chop off the, the, the tail a little bit. Um, but we've always got plenty to choose from. Um, forgive me if you feel like you've already covered this, but... Um you know, we've spoken a little bit about um, the discounts and the premiums. Uh, how do how do you actually think in investors, or how do you personally um, approach the issue of discounts and premiums? Um, you know, like when you're looking at a discount, what are you trying to work out? What what is a, a good discount and what's a bad discount? Well, that's that that's the bit uh, that's the bit of LIC investing. I think that's more art than science, but. I'll give you a sort of an idea as to how we approach it. I think, first of all, for the average investor out there, you know, what we do is quite intensive because we're looking every day at the LICs. We're um, trying to work out where their current NTAs are and, and, and they're moving around. But if you look at it as a whole of cycle opportunity uh, and you say, okay, maybe once in every five to 10 years, we're going to have a big market correction. And when that happens, the market's going to fall, obviously which means the investments most of the LICs hold will fall. So their NTAs are going to fall, their share price will fall. And what also tends to happen during that time is the discounts across the board on average get bigger. And so if the average at the moment is is about not much, um, in March last year, the average was probably 20 to 25% discount. Okay, so once a cycle or twice a cycle, you're going to be able to buy LICs 
that are have have assets that are cheap because the value of them's fallen, and they're going to have a bigger discount than average. And then maybe once a cycle, people are going to get super excited about LICs and all those discounts are going to close up and turn into premiums, and you know the, the prices will rise and the and the NTAs are going well, and so they'll be much less attractive. And so as an investor, I would be saying, well, okay, look, the time to think about LICs or increasing your exposure is actually when markets have fallen and there's lots of opportunities. And maybe then you scale that back a little bit when everyone's excited and you wait for the next opportunity. So at its simplest, that's, that's how the, the, the way I would think about it. Um, for us, you know, we use a simple a theory when we're looking at discounts. Uh, we think of an LIC, in fact, any investment we make, we look at it over a three-year period and we say, okay, what can happen over the next three years? And for every LIC, the right discount's different. For some, the right discount is, is really not much or maybe even NTA. For others, we wouldn't buy it at a 20 or even a 30% discount. And there's a few factors in that, size, uh, what they're investing in, um, how well the manager markets the LIC, how long it's been around. There's a whole lot of factors. But the simplest way to, th- to think about whether it might be a good opportunity is to look at a particular LIC and, and say, okay, what is the discount or premium now and what has it been uh, over, the, over the life of its existence? Um, and so, like, just one quick good example of that right now, there's an LIC called the Jiroa. DJW is its code, and it's been around for quite a long time. It's run by the same team that run AFIC, and it has a similar investment portfolio, except that as well as investing in Aussie shares, it also writes call options to generate a little bit of extra income, um, which potentially gives away a little bit of capital gain, but very, very similar to AFIC. Dejero, um, under its history, has traded at a premium a lot of the time as high as 40%. But more recently, through a bunch of, for a bunch of reasons, which are valid, it's actually fallen into a discount. And so it's one of our better holdings right now because right now Dejirawa is trading at a maybe an 8 or 9% discount. And AFIC, which is essentially from the same stable run by the same team, is trading at about an 8 to 10% premium. And so we think that differential is not right. And we also think that, you know, relative to where Dejirawa is traded over the long, long period of time, it, it looks cheap. So there's an example where uh, we, we think it looks cheap. There are others we might we might sell when they got from a, a 25 to a 15% discount because that's about as good as we think they can get. So it, it is different for every LIC. A few years ago, there was a, a spate of new LIC listings or IPOs. Um, it seems to have... Uh, have fallen out of fashion a little bit for now. <laughs> I'm guessing if you you probably have a longer history of the industry than I do, but I'm guessing these, these things probably run in cycles like everything else. Um, I sure do. <laughs> but look, there are some advantages to investing in an IPO. You know, you often get those, the, the options that come along with it and things like that. But but there are some, you know, there are some risks that come along with it as well. So, I mean, if, all things considered, do you think that it is good to buy LICs at IPO or, or not? Um, almost never would be our, our answer. I mean, 
if you look at that, there were you're right. There was a lot of IPOs between about 2016 and 2018. We probably participated in about one in every five of those, and we probably wish we hadn't bothered with half of them. So, uh, generally speaking, and I guess that's the case, you know, with IPOs generally. Um, <laughs> The basic rule of thumb is the the ones you know, as an individual investor or even a smaller fund manager, um, the ones you can't get access to because they're massively oversubscribed are, are the ones you probably should have, and the rest is probably not <laughs> worth it. So, you know, what's amazing about IPOs is they go through these this fairly discernible pattern, particularly LICs, where they might list, they might trade at a small premium for a little while, maybe a few months, maybe a few weeks. And then they struggle for maybe a year or two after that and they go to a discount and the discount keeps getting bigger. Um, and the main thing that determines how sort of messy that gets is, is the performance over that first year or two. But quite often what we found is a great time to buy an LIC can actually be six months, 12 months or two years after it lists because that's when, uh, you know, that's when it's sort of least favoured from a market point of view. So you can potentially pick them up at a pretty decent discount. And we've done that quite successfully for quite a number of LICs I can think of. Having said that, we do participate in, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is not a lot of new LICs coming to market, but we are seeing quite a lot of LICs do capital raisings in various forms, uh, share purchase plans, rights issues and placements. And so we are selectively participating in, in some of those. And we think that's that's a good thing for the sector, providing, you know, the, the, the golden rule there is to managers just don't raise at a big discount to your net asset value because that really is just destroying value. So as long as they're not breaking that rule, uh, there can be some opportunities there. Around the kind of back end of that period we were just referring to there where uh, there were a lot of IPOs, there was a little bit of controversy about those LIC options. Um, which are often given at an IPO. And there was some on, on one side kind of saying, look, they don't actually have any real value. You're just borrowing from yourself, essentially. And others were saying, no, no, these are a real thing. They do have genuine you know, economic value. I don't suppose you would have an opinion on that topic that you'd be willing to, to weigh in on, would you? Oh, look, yeah, we have an opinion on everything. Uh, look, I think <laughs> they can be a good... Look, options can actually be a good tool um, because if you think about it, if an LIC uh, issues options today, again, provided they're not uh, exercisable at, or issued when it's trading at a big, big discount and therefore they're not diluting existing shareholders um, too much, uh, they can actually be a, a good tool to grow capital because what happens is you know, options get issued today by the LIC at somewhere close to the trading price and the NTA maybe, um, and they might have one or two years or three years to run. And so if the manager does a good job, um, the options become valuable, they become exercised, the LIC gets bigger, but all of that only happens because the shareholders have had a pretty good uh, journey. You know, the, the LIC has actually made money. And so for that reason, they can be good. Um, and if the, the market does poorly or the LIC falls, then they tend to not get exercised. And, and again, no one gets hurt. Uh, the LIC doesn't grow and they effectively expire worthless. So they can be useful. 
um, as long as they're used for good, not evil. Uh, at the moment, there are a few uh, LICs that are issuing bonus options. So if you're a shareholder, you, you get them for free and they do have a small value. They tend to and then, again, you can decide as a shareholder whether you'd like to hold on to them, sell the options themselves on market or wait until closer to the expiry and make a decision on the exercise. So, um, look, they, the only negative is that they do tend to obviously complicate the capital structure a little bit. So you have to be aware of whether an LIC has got options on issue because they do they dilute the upside if you like because obviously if, if if the share price goes up a lot more are going to get exercised and so that's going to have some sort of dilute. Um, you know but at the moment uh, we own for example options in, in two or three licks one we've bought relatively recently is pick perpetual has an option which expires in about a year uh, it's pretty close to where the current trading price is and we're buying it sort of one and a half cents per option. So it becomes like a um, a, a very cheap option. It is essentially if, if they do very well over the next 12 months, then we can make good money out of that. If the market does poorly or the LIC does poorly, we haven't lost much. So there are times when that makes sense. Well, let's get into the actual kind of analysis of an LIC. What are some of the, I guess, highly desirable attributes that you're looking for when you're sitting down and assessing uh, an LIC? Look, I think at the heart of it, we, we've talked about, you know, being able to buy at an attractive discount. So that's that's a given. Um, the other important thing for an LIC is that the manager shows respect for shareholders. By that I mean, you know, really that they're doing the things they need to do to try to make sure that the the lick trades consistently well. So regular marketing, um, explaining the investment performance, what's going well, what's going poorly, where the opportunities are and aren't. So we, we need to be able to understand what's happening with an LIC and how the managers think. Um, not doing anything silly with the capital structure that destroys value. Um, and then a lot of the other features we look for in an LIC are very, very similar to the features that we would look for in an unlisted fund. So we want to see that the investment team has skin in the game and preferably in two ways, preferably by um, having an investment in the LIC itself but also by owning a share of the manager so that they're um, doing well, just doing well. We like performance fee structures you know, we like the we like LICs that have perhaps a lower base fee and a, and a performance component, and, th and that's the same way we work We're, with all of our funds. We don't charge any base fee at all. We we are we are one hundred percent performance remunerated. So that means you know if, if an LIC does well, if we do well, um, our investors do well, everybody's happy. And then I think we also look at um, uh, you know what the investment strategy is. So to understand, and the reason we like to know that is, you know, if you're going to put a portfolio of LICs together, you really need to understand how each LIC is going to perform in different markets and how it might be differentiated from uh, another LIC. And even that is even the case if they're both investing in a similar market. They might go about it very different ways. Um, so, you know, they might... Um, for example, one may be growth-focused and one might be value-focused. And, and certainly over the last eight or 10 years, 
you've had very different results. The growth managers have tended to go exceptionally well. The value managers, not so much. So um, th there's differences there you need to take into account. And then, of course, we'd like to see uh, that the portfolio of investments that the LIC owns, the underlying shares or uh, whatever they happen to be, uh, we'd like to see that that's attractively priced as well. And that's a bit harder in the current environment with equity markets having had such a good run. Uh, it's certainly getting harder to find pure value in the LIC portfolios. So that, that, look, that's a rundown of the key things. There are a lot of other things we look at, but those tend to be the big, big things we focus on. Do you take any additional precautions when you're dealing? Some, some LICs invest in assets that are not easily priced. You know, they're not traded on a public exchange or the like. Do you take additional precautions when you're dealing with that to make sure that the, the underlying assets are actually being valued and priced correctly? Look, we certainly do, um, and uh, we, you know, most LICs will publish, even if you have to dig through the annual report to find it, you, you will find some information about how they value those assets. Um, and I would say most of them these days that, that are invested in illiquid assets could be, for example, private equity or debt uh, or any number of things, uh, farmland in some cases. Um, they're generally pretty good at pricing them. It's just that they tend to price them with a bit of a lag. So we tend to factor that into our assessment. And what that means in some cases is we might demand a bigger discount um, for the fact that uh, we don't know for sure how that valuation might have changed. In other cases, it can be a good thing. Um, so for example, at the moment, three of the LICs we hold um, uh, codes are CD1, CD2, and CD3, and they're invested primarily in US private equity. Now, they do revalue those reasonably regularly, but there's always a lag. And so because US markets have had such a strong run, um, they tend to be announcing revaluations upwards at, at a regular basis because um, uh, that the markets have gone pretty well, but, but there's probably still uh, a bit more to come because that maybe they're valuing them three or six months ago, and the markets have moved since then. Having said that, we're a little bit wary about the US market right now, so our opinions probably changed in the last two or three months. But um, up until then, that, that were some of our certainly better holdings for the last year or two. Are there any kind of, um, beyond the possibility of, a, of an LIC trading at a premium, are there any other kind of red flags that might cause you to just go, no, this isn't right for our portfolio, whether it be a, a temporary or a permanent thing, just something that's going to instantly exclude it from, from consideration. Yeah, look, definitely. Um, I've probably mentioned a couple already. Certainly raising capital at a big discount um, is a no-no. So we, we tend to look at what the manager is doing and whether, you know, some managers their business model requires them to grow their funds under management. And so you can be sure any opportunity they get, they'll, they'll raise capital. Um, and so we tend to avoid those. Um, there are some that are just too small and too illiquid for us to invest in well. And so we, in some cases, reluctantly give those a miss. We want to see clarity on the investment strategy. So if we, if we see an LIC that has a kind of opaque strategy or uh, it's not clear, um, a lot of investment staff turnover, we don't like that at all. Uh, so we, we very much believe performance comes from the, the key people 
making the investment decisions. And if they change, uh, it's less likely to perform the way it has in the past. So that's something we would perhaps um, take time to understand. So they're probably the, the big things. Uh, but generally speaking, as I said, the quality in the LIC sector is is pretty high. So we're pretty um, we're pretty excited generally by the opportunity. There's always something that that gets us interested. Of course, there's there's kind of two levels to uh, managing a portfolio. You've got if if we were talking public equities, we'd say stock selection, then portfolio construction. It's largely the same for you, except it's LIC selection, I guess. But I want to talk about the actual portfolio construction. Um, how do you approach that? How do you think about it? How do you go about diversifying your portfolio? So, you know, I, I'm sure it'd be nice just to buy the things with the biggest discounts, but there's always a little bit more to it than that. So, so what's your approach there? Yeah, there sure is. Um, so we, so first of all, I mentioned earlier we have a three-year investment period. So when we look at an LIC today, we think about how it might perform over the next three years. You know, how will the investment portfolio go? Um, how might the discount or premium change? Um, so th that kind of gets it into our bucket of, of interested or not interested. Uh, at any given time, we would have between 20 and 35 LICs in the portfolio. And, you know, where that uh, comes out is largely a factor of how many opportunities there are. So, again, if I go back to 12, 18 months ago, Post the COVID dip, uh, you know, we had 35. We were at the maximum because there was just so many opportunities. Two or three months ago, we were, we were probably near the bottom end of that range. We only had about 20 and now we've got about 25. So that's one idea of how many opportunities we see. And, and individually, position sizing within our portfolio, we would, you know, a large holding for us is, is 5 to 7.5%. Uh, it's quite rarely that an individual LIC would be more than 7.5%, but it could go to 10. Um, at the smaller end, um, uh, you know, 2.5% is probably a reasonable position for us and, and we wouldn't really hold anything less than 1%. So that's that's how we think of individual LICs. Um, and then we, we take a top-down view, so that's the kind of the opportunity set, and then we adjust that for how we feel about markets. So right now we're feeling um, a little bit less comfortable. Uh, so we would be carrying more cash than normal, and we'll have some uh, some put options uh, in place um, to protect us against down down markets. So at the moment, our market exposure in in our LIC portfolio is probably between fifty and sixty percent. I take it you when you say put options, you mean on the market, yeah, not on individual LICs. That's correct. Yeah, um, as far as we know, we can't can't get put options over individual LIC. So we, we would take usually we would just use the ASX two hundred. So it, it's not a perfect hedge, but it does allow us to, you know, there are times when we still find plenty of LICs we'd like to own, but we're not so comfortable with the total market exposure, and so we will use put options, um, uh, or in, or in some cases we will we will take forward hedges directly to, to kind of hedge out some of that market. So the, the US private equity LICs I mentioned earlier, we, we still own them, but because we're uncomfortable about the US markets, we've hedged out a fair chunk of the underlying market risk that they might have. I know we've discussed a range of different LICs and you've touched on a few of them, 
But could you pick out maybe one or two that you think offer particularly attractive prospects today? Just give us a bit of a rundown of what it is that you like about those particular LICs. Yeah, um, well, I think I've already mentioned one, the Jirawa. That's certainly one of our top three positions at the moment, so I won't go over that one again. Um, but we think that's a good combination of a, a reasonable discount, a good team, a good yield. Um, another couple we like at the moment, we like Sandin Capital, which is SNC. Uh, they're coming off a, a capital raising, so their share price has been just a little bit soft recently. But um, certainly they've got a, a really good track record. Um, they they run an activist strategy, so it's quite different. Even though they're investing in in mid to small cap Aussie equities mostly, um, because they've got that activist focus, it, it tends to get quite a different um, opportunity set to your standard equity fund. It's got a very good yield. The discounts okay at about eleven or twelve percent, um, and we think if you look at it over a three to five year term, uh, Sandin can do very well. Um, the other one we quite like is WAM Alternatives, WMA. Now, it's the old blue sky alternatives, but taken over by Jeff Wilson's WAM Capital last year. Uh, the investment team has new. The portfolio um, uh, is quite good and, and they're carrying about 25% cash at the moment, so they are adding new investments to the portfolio. So, you know, that's certainly different. It's it, It's a combination of agricultural, water rights, uh, some private equity and some real estate. So it very much is that alternative uh, asset bucket. And the other feature we quite like is is it's trading at a discount, um, maybe 10 or 12%. But the manager agreement was adjusted last year to specifically incentivize the manager to get it trading at net asset value. Um, and if that doesn't happen at specified periods within a five-year term, then the manager has to put a resolution to shareholders to, to wind up the vehicle. So that's similar to what we see in other markets like the UK, for example, where periodically um, the, the investors get to vote on whether an LIC should be wound up and that kind of makes managers very focused on making sure they don't trade it at a really big discount for a long time. It's certainly something we'd like to see more of, so that would be, be useful. But um, two or three quite different ones there, I think. When it was still uh, the Blue Sky Alternatives Investment Trust, they, if I recall correctly, they had quite a large uh, holding in student accommodation, which is not something I've really thought about for several years. <laughs> but um, in light of COVID and closed borders, I'm just kind of curious, do they still hold those assets? Um, and how have they, if they do, how have they performed over the last few years? Uh, no, they don't own them, but by good luck or good management, they sold out of most of them, I think, about two years ago. And uh, in fact, some of them even at a premium to the carrying value at the time. So I think it's fair to say that would have been, they would have been tough assets to own for the last 18 months or so for obvious reasons. Um, but no, they did manage to, to get out of those now. So the, the biggest holdings now I think is probably the biggest is, is water rights which is about a quarter, and, and agricultural assets is maybe another 20%. Um, and then private equity and the real estate component is quite small. So uh, I, I think there'll be more infrastructure will go in there. And it, it is, it, even though it's alternatives, it's, it's actually quite a diversified pool. 
Well, that's the end of the main part of the interview. Um, but I have three favorite questions that I like to ask every one of my investors. I know we're nearing the end of the time we had scheduled, but if you've got maybe another five or 10 minutes to hang around, uh, we can jump into those now. Love to. Sounds good. Excellent. Could you tell me about a book that's been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? What did you like about it? What do I say? I don't read many books anymore. I read a lot of books when I was younger. Um, These days, my reading more often tends to be blogs and and various small pieces that I can digest um, quickly, I guess. Like on Livewire? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I I think it works well to our shorter attention spans. But I will say um, there's two I'd mention. One's completely unrelated to investing and one is very related. So the the one I would say first is Howard Marks, and you probably had this one before I would expect, but um, he's written a couple of books. But the first book that really struck a chord with me is called The Most Important Thing, Um, and that is born out of the fact that when Howard Marks – and he started out investing essentially um, in distressed debt and, and they built a massive business in the US out of that. Um, but he used to go and see his clients and he'd say the most important thing is this and then a week later he'd say the most important thing is that and it'd be something different. And so eventually he kind of collected all these thoughts together and came up with about I think there's about 12 or 13 most important things. And there's two reasons I like it. First thing is that all of the most important things he names are, are in fact to us very important. Um, The way he thinks about markets is very similar to our own philosophy in terms of having a value focus and thinking about market cycles and buying things when they're demonstrably cheap and being prepared to wait. Um, But finally, he has this knack of explaining complicated concepts very, very simply and getting right to the heart of the matter. So I would suggest for anyone... um, who has a, at least an ounce of a, of a value focus somewhere in their DNA, that would be a great book. The second book I loved recently was actually Greenlights, um, which is Matthew McConaughey's, uh, the actor's um, kind of life story, if you like. Uh, and it was just, um, it was an interesting experience. I, I read a lot of things not related to investing these days, and I think it helps with your investing mindset. And, and it's just a combination of, you know, he's done quite a few pivots in his life, He'll have periods of dedication and focus followed by him going off on a tangent for two years doing something completely different. And I just found it, I find it a real eye-opener to read, particularly biographies these days um, from people not necessarily in the funds management space. I think it just gives you a, a completely different perspective. As always, I'll put links up in the wire for this podcast to both of those books, Uh for Amazon and Booktopia. So our listeners, if you didn't catch the name or if you would just prefer to click on a link, um, just go to livewiremarkets.com, navigate to the wire uh, for this podcast and you'll find the links in there. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss as an investor? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? Um, Look, I I think... I mean, I came to investing quite late, actually, um, because I was an accountant for a long time. Um, but I, I think, personally, I think the best investment I ever had, I, I mentioned my time at Cromwell. And so, personally, certainly the best investment we've ever had is Cromwell. And the interesting thing about that business is, you know, the power of a growing funds management business is enormous. Um 
And so one of the areas we look to invest a small amount of money um, in our funds is actually into the listed funds management space. And Cromwell is a company that went from a cent a share to over a dollar. So it basically went up 100 times over a period of about um, 11 or 12 years. Um, and that was all down to the fact that, you know, by being fairly capital light and being able to grow that business quite quickly for a number of years, um, it was able to do very, very well. Um, so that was certainly one. And certainly I would think, you know, in the LIC space in the last 12 months, we've had a number of investments that have gone up by 50 to 100%. Uh, Regal is, is one LIC that's done very well, and um, uh, L, L1 LSF is the other one that's done exceptionally well. Um, so again, it comes down to being prepared to put some money to work when when there's real value on, on offer, and to sort of close your eyes and and again take that two, three, four year view and just put some money to work. Um, that's something we would encourage anyone to look at. Worse investments, we tend to be quite conservative and we don't tend to buy and sell quickly, but we, we would regularly, um, we do buy options. Uh, they're a very small part of our portfolio uh, in all cases for all of our funds. We buy call options. I mentioned pick earlier. We buy um, put options over the market and we quite often lose 100% of that money. And the reason, but the reason it's there is that if, if we win, we will make multiple multiples of our money. And so, you know, we're using those either to hedge um, or to um, uh, perhaps take some advantage of some potential for upside if we think that's out there. So, um, you know, investing is a combination of two things. It's a combination of um, how much you, you might win or lose and what's the chances of each of those things happening. And so sometimes we'll certainly... Take a, uh, put some money into something where we might actually lose a small amount in order that we might win multiple times that. And we think there's maybe a 50% chance or better of, of us winning. So um, it can be an interesting space to play, but it's, it's, it's not for everybody. You've got to be very careful in it. I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. I'm not actually suggesting to anybody that they go out there, put all of their money in a single stock and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if the markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? I like your disclaimer um, because I, I would never, uh, never put one hundred percent of my money to one company. But um, so I think I, I, if I'm thinking about this, here's what I'm thinking. Firstly, I think you know I've mentioned we've got a bit of a, a value bias. In fact, it's it's a fairly big value bias as as investors. That makes us a little bit contrarian. Um, and so if I look around and I say, okay, where is where is the value right now? It's actually quite hard to find it, but um, if I look at small cap Aussie shares with a value bias, there is some extraordinary opportunities on offer. And so then if I say, how do I take advantage of that? Um, then I come up with a, an LIC that, that focuses on that area. And the LIC is top thorny opportunities. Um, you probably, in fact, I think you might have actually had Alex Wastelitz on, on the podcast before. 
Um, I did indeed. It was only ju- he's been on twice, but the most recent one was only just a few episodes ago. <laughs> oh, well, he'll he'll love me then. Um, so look, I think so. The reason the reason I like it is because of the opportunity set. There is a massive opportunity in small value. Um, that particular LIC, Alex runs two. There's a tech focused one which has done exceptionally well and is trading pretty close to net asset value. And Top, on the other hand, has done exceptionally poorly. Um, and is trading at a 25-odd percent discount to its net asset value. If I look backwards, I go, why would you own that? But if I look forward, I say, well, actually, there's an incredible opportunity um, over the next three to five years in small-cap Aussie value, and that's where I want to be. Um, so I would be buying that. It is one of the larger holdings in our LIC fund. I would say that as well. Um, it's concentrated uh, there's a little bit of activism involved in that investment strategy. Sometimes you have to push and prod management of, of some of those investments to get things happening. There's also one or two unlisted investments and some other things we like. Um, so there's a lot to like about TOP. Um, the only thing I would say against it is the fee structure is is quite horrendous. So um, if, if you're fee sensitive, it, you're not going to like it. Um, but if you can look through that, um, and, you know, we think your fees aren't great, but um, the upside on, on offer is quite quite tremendous. So that would be my pick if you um, forced me to pick one, which you did. I did. I did. <laughs> well, Daryl, thanks for uh, thanks for playing along there and thanks for sharing your, uh, your thoughts and your, your insights on the LIC sector with us today. No problem. Very, very happy to do it. I enjoyed it. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.